It is good to be back with you in person this morning. We were, uh, my family and I, we were traveling last week. Uh, like many of you, maybe not all of you, we were uh, able to have a vacation this year. But I tell you what, it is good that uh, on vacation you don't have to question anymore, do I go to church on vacation? Do I, do I get dressed up? Do I bring some clothes uh, to go find a local church and w- try to figure out what church to go to when you can just dial into North Hills, right? And so it was good last week to be able to join you remotely, and uh, just a great joy to uh, hear, to be a part of Adam Johnson's first sermon, uh, which was very encouraging in the Lord, and I know the church was edified, and in comparison to my first sermon at 15 years old that lasted seven minutes, was not nearly as awkward. So uh, thank you, Adam, for being faithful with the Word, and looking forward to see how the Lord continues to work that in you uh, and bless North Hills. But it is, uh, it is good to be back with you this morning. Before we start, I do ask that you continue to pray for uh, Emily, Erica's sister. She has uh, COVID and she's in the hospital in Shreveport and it's, uh, has a number of health complications. And so she is uh, doing okay this morning and kind of holding. But uh, just uh, pray for her and her family. Um, and I know there's a lot of uh, family and loved ones who are struggling with COVID right now. And so uh, just continue to pray for uh, uh, the Lord's will be done uh, in each one of those. So as we turn our attention to Scripture, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to gather as your people uh, in person and for those who join us remotely. Lord, I thank you for technology, God, that um, despite all of its uh, pitfalls and downfalls and and issues that we encounter, Lord, that can be used for your glory as well. I thank you for your word now, Lord, as we continue in Jude. And I thank you for the truth that we find in your word that we can rest in. And help us, Lord, to navigate this truth by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. So we are walking through Jude. And uh, last week, Adam got to kind of pick up where I left off a couple weeks ago, transitioning from verse 4 and moving on. He covered uh, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And yes, I heard most of the Snyder marks that he covered more ground than I cover in months. And so because of that, we're going to bog down this morning and hunker down, okay? Teach you to laugh at me. Uh, But this morning, we are going to continue in uh, really where, where Jude is. Jude is getting to the heart of this letter. We said from the onset that Jude is this kind of this beautiful sandwich, if you will. The beginning of Jude and the end of Jude are just these glorious praises to the Lord. He even says, I wish I could write to you about this common salvation that we have. And he was excited to do so. And then he got distracted. Uh, now, we know not really distracted. We know the Lord had other plans for this scriptural author. And so, uh, so he says, instead, I can't write to you about these glorious truths of our common salvation, but instead I've got to talk to you and address these false teachers and these apostates and these who have this false message who are creeping into the church. And so he is getting to the heart. And, we, uh, and Adam started that last week and says there in verse 4, for these certain people have crept in unnoticed. And what kind of people have crept into the church? It says ungodly people, sensual people, as we'll see this morning, and those who deny Christ. And these aren't outside the church. He's not talking about the world and the culture. He's not talking about Rome. He's He's talking about those who are inside the church, as we'll see more of this morning. 
And he begins to explain how God brings certain and definite judgment to these sinners. And he gives some uh, some very big illustrations. That's where Adam was last week when he talks about God destroying the unbelieving of uh, of Israel. Uh, whenever they came out of e- Egypt, whenever we see the uh, the punishment that was given to the fallen angels as they were kept in chains until uh, the judgment, to the great day of judgment that is ahead. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah that we'll spend our time on this morning and the judgment that Jude points to and said, this is how serious this issue is. These people who are creeping in to the church and this is not something to be taken lightly. It was so serious that he diverted what he was going to write about to instead write this letter about the seriousness of sin that is found in the church, especially the seriousness of sin that is taught in the church. And so the ultimate point that he is uh, he's getting to, that he'll continue to make, especially next week as we begin again in verse 8, uh, that God hates sin and then he brings judgment against sinners. And this is very clear, not just in the letter of Jude, it's clear all throughout Scripture that God hates sin and brings judgment to sinners. It's not, uh, it's not the picture of the, the, godlet, the, the grandfather God in the sky, right, on his eternal and divine rocking chair that we like to often think about, or especially those who are really not of the Lord like to think of God in this, um, in this misalignment. But instead, it is a picture of God who loves His people. And we we talk about that often, especially uh, the second week of Jude, as we look to the called, the beloved in God, the Father, who are kept for us in Christ, uh, that mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And so we see just the overwhelming love that God has for His people that is demonstrated in the cross through Christ. But just as much as God loves his people, he hates sin. And he even says in Scripture that he hates sinners and he judges sinners. And the full judgment and wrath of God is placed upon sinners. So, it's good to be back. It's a good, hearty, happy message this morning as we deal with God hating sin and bringing judgment to sinners. Before we go on to verse 8, which we'll do next week, I'd like us to take a look this morning at a very real and current issue that faces us today. And so let's just kind of, let's start off in verse 5 and we'll just kind of set the context for us. Uh, Jude says, now I want to remind you, although that you, what you once fully knew, or I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, and we'll get back with them next week, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so Jude references Sodom and Gomorrah here. Uh, The sin and the judgment of these two cities, and not just the two cities, but Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities uh, were well known in the church. They've been well known today. Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't have to be in the church to be familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. We even have terms that uh, come from Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the, if not one of the, is the most referenced city of judgment throughout Scripture. Uh, just to give you a few books, not necessarily all the references, but we see Sodom and Gomorrah referenced in Deuteronomy, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Matthew, Luke, Romans, 2 Peter, of course, Jude, and Revelation. And so it is all through Scripture, and it's always for the same purpose, to point others, to point the readers, to point God's people, and to point listening sinners to God's judgment against sin and sinners. And so he, he brings up Sodom and Gomorrah for a very intentional purpose. As one author says, the glare of Sodom and Gomorrah is flung down the whole length of scriptural history. So whenever the, the Jews were reading this and listening to this and experiencing this, they clearly knew what he meant when he referenced Sodom and Gomorrah. Adam did a wonderful job last week pointing us to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We won't go back to uh, the text, but it is, and you're likely familiar with it, even if you weren't here, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Lot and these two angels and visitors and the, and the town who surround the house, and they are just consumed with sexual sin and sexual morality and pride, and it's obvious that their cities are consumed with licentiousness, as we talked about last week, as we'll look this morning. And... Now, Jude is not necessarily saying uh, that, that this sin is what he sees in the church, but his point is that the judgment that God dealt to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, the judgment he dealt to these angels, the judgment he dealt to the unbelieving of Israel is the judgment that he deals to sin and sinners. And so... And a quick glance. So we're going to look this morning at Sodom and Gomorrah. It is, uh, we don't often um, take a topical approach on Sunday mornings. And this morning is, you could say it's topical, but you could also obviously root it in, in Scripture where we're at in Jude. Uh, but we, ha- we have come in our, in our normal systematic approach to going through God's Word. We've come to this issue of sexual immorality. And so we want to take a moment as a church, we'll take a moment as your elders to say, let us look at this issue because it is one, and it's not just the issue of today. It's been the issue throughout all of history, right? Sexual sin is nothing new. Sexual immorality is not a 21st century sin. And really, if you look at all of the, the list of sin in the New Testament, and there are, there are a number of lists of these sins that, say that, are, that are not becoming of a believer, that almost at the top of every single one of those lists is sexual sin. And so we want to take a moment this morning. We want to stop and pause intentionally, stall, if you will, and look at this sin that is associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. And a quick glance for those who know Scripture, whenever we think about and talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, we initially immediately think about homosexuality, which we'll deal with this morning. Because after all, that is the sin that is on center stage, that is on display in Sodom and Gomorrah, is the sin of homosexuality. As we said last week, Adam made a great point as he, as he walked through that and talked about even the, the issue of how that would be a gospel issue and how the, it was a tactic of the enemy to potentially uh, to, to, to take the, the Messiah off track and as, as he would integrate uh, these angels with uh, these men and the sin of homosexuality and how it affects the, the, the messianic line. But this is not the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What we see in the historical account of Sodom and Gomorrah are entire cities that are given over to depravity and a reprobate mind. 
They have zero regard for God. They have zero regard for His law and for His messengers. And we'll see this is also true of the false teachers and the others in Jude who have zero regard for the authority of God's Word, for the authority of God Himself, and who have given over to their sensual desires. And so there is both a, uh, the picture of judgment that we see, but there's also the similarity of their sen- sensual nature. And it's one that we can learn much from uh, today. And so as we take a moment to address sexual morality, this is at the heart an issue of the gospel. Uh, we're going to, as always, turn to many passages of Scripture. Some we'll turn to and some I'll just uh, I'll read for you for the sake of time. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, because you know we've got to be in Ephesians at least once a week. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, when speaking of marriage, Paul, who's writing to the church of Ephesus, he is specifically speaking of the union of man and woman. And one of our just one of my favorite passages in Scripture, especially as it relates to husbands and wives and marriage. Um, we started this uh, in our community group. We started Love and Respect before COVID ravaged its head again and it got, got off track. But, uh, and many of us have walked through Love and Respect. And the, the root of that, the root of happy, healthy, holy marriages can be found in Ephesians 5. But I digress. Uh, but he talks about how wives should submit to their husbands and talks about how husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church. He says all these wonderful things about marriage. But then he gets to um, verse 31 of Ephesians 5. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so marriage is not just a human institution. It's not even a human institution at all. It's an institution of God himself that was established in the garden that is ultimately a picture of the gospel. So therefore, an attack on marriage is an attack on the gospel. This is why God hates divorce, and this is why God hates all forms of sexual immorality. It's not just don't do this, don't commit these sins, but it's an attack on the gospel. It's an affront on the gospel, this picture of Christ and his bride. God has a plan. He has a purpose for marriage. So what is God's plan and purpose for marriage? It is for the union of one man to one woman to glorify God and display the gospel. If you thought your marriage was just to have some civil union or to have some good arrangement or not to be lonely or have someone cook for you because you can't cook or someone to provide for you because you don't want to work or whatever the situation may be, that is not the picture of the gospel. That is not the purpose of the gospel. and That is not the plan for marriage. It is for one man and one woman to glorify God and display the gospel. But as sin always does, it distorts marriage and it distorts the gospel. Specifically, it distorts it through sexual sin found before and within marriage. Sexual immorality disrupts, distorts, and destroys God's plan for marriage. To name a few this morning, engaging in sexual activity before marriage 
disrupts, distorts, and destroys God's plan for marriage. You go to Hebrews 13.4 that we walked through several months ago. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And so engaging in sexual activity of any kind before marriage disrupts, distorts, and destroys God's plan and God's picture for marriage. Engaging in pornography, it opens the floodgates of lust, which leads to mental, moral, and spiritual adultery. We can see Jesus speak to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, 28. He says, you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so engaging in pornography disrupts, distorts, and destroys God's plan for marriage. Disrupts the gospel image, the gospel plan, the gospel illustration of marriage. For it's not God's plan. And then, of course, engaging in in homosexuality disrupts, distorts, and destroys God's plan for marriage. Two verses... um, 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 says this. And I specifically pointed to two two New Testament verses here. The Old Testament is not obsolete by any stretch of the imagination, but so many um, opponents of homosexuality proponents rather of homosexuality like to discard the uh, the old testament passage about homosexuality because of the way that we see the old testament and believers life today so two clear passages and many would say that the new testament doesn't speak to homosexuality which is completely a lie first timothy 1 9 and 10 says this we also know that the law is made not for the righteous but for lawbreakers and rebels. And so we can go to the law, we can go to the Old Testament, we can go to the Ten Commandments and the 636 uh, commandments uh, uh, that were also given. We can say all these things in the Old Testament, but they're not for the righteous, they're for lawbreakers and rebels. The ungodly and sinful, they're for the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So these things, all of these things are contrary to sound biblical doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which He entrusted to me. So we see the sexual immorality, the even specifically homosexuality, that these things are contrary to sound doctrines. We'll see. You go to the first chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And so Paul, in these two accounts in Romans and 1 Timothy, uh, authored by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God, 
which our authority comes from, is crystal clear that engaging in homosexuality is sexual morality. Engaging in pornography is sexual immorality. Engaging in any sexual activity before marriage is sexual immorality. And then fourthly, sexual morality disrupts, distorts, and destroys God's plan for marriage. This is also seen in engaging in, a new word here, gender fluidity. A word that I'm sure we are all tired of hearing and see quite often in the news. Gender fluidity. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27-27, a verse that you're probably familiar with. And maybe you didn't realize how simple this um, issue is rooted in God's Word. Genesis 1:27-28 says, So God created mankind in His own image. He created mankind in his own image. Hold on to that. We'll come back to it in a moment. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them, male and female, one or two, either or the other. He created them, not with gender fluidity, but with an objective, clear gender. God created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is just such a clear mandate, not just in gender fluidity, but in so much of human uh, life and activity. And what is our mandate is God has created us. He's created us um, to be his image bearers. He's created us to be uh, male and female. He's created us to have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And we know that sin comes in and disrupts and distorts that image and that mandate that God gave us from the very beginning. He didn't give us a new mandate with the New Testament. He doesn't give us a new mandate every so often. This is the mandate He's given us from the beginning of creation. So this is an issue of sexuality and gender that really warrants this discussion this morning as we talk about sexual immorality. You can't help but talk specifically about those two things, sexuality and gender. So to help us kind of clarify, to clearly define the difference between sexuality and gender, let me offer this to you. Sexuality speaks to design and desires, while gender speaks to distinction and differences. These are similar, but they're not the same. Sexuality speaks to design and desires, while gender speaks to uh, distinction and differences. God designed, and we see this in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and there's more there. And you can go and study those two chapters in the beginning of Scripture. God designed our sexuality in order that we would procreate. It's just a design of God. He created man, he created woman to have babies, okay? That's just a clear, uh, clear, exa- clear from Scripture. Not just Genesis 1 and 2, but throughout Scripture, we see that to be clear. Now, we know, we're not getting into all the, uh, all the things that, that, that engage with this this morning. We know that some can't do that. We know that because of sin, sin breaks the womb, and sin breaks the, the process, and sin breaks God's design. We understand that. But God has designed our sexuality that we might procreate. That's the mandate of Genesis chapter 1, to be fruitful and fill the earth. And unfortunately, sin corrupts this ability at times. And when it does, we look to and trust the Lord. And that looks different in different contexts. Sexuality not just speaks of design, it also speaks to our desire. 
So we said that sexuality speaks to design and desire. It speaks to our desire to want the opposite sex, very simply. And again, that's how God has wired us. He has made us to desire the opposite sex. Now we know, again, that sin comes in to distort and destroy. And I forgot Mother Day. <laughs> and to disrupt God's plan. We understand this. And so we know that not everyone born has this natural desire in them, and that desire is broken. It doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that sin has come in and broken God's design for our desire. He has given us our sexuality to desire the opposite sex, and sin corrupts this as well. And this is why the Bible calls this desire When you desire someone of the same sex, that's why Scripture calls it unnatural. Therefore, if we desire the same sex, it is a sin-filled impulse, and it is not what God intends. So God has a design for, He has a purpose for our sexuality. It It brings design, and it brings desires. And you look at gender. Gender speaks of two different things. Gender speaks of distinction, and it speaks of differences. God distinctly creates every human being throughout history as either male or female. It is a distinct difference. 99.9%. That's not a made-up stat. uh, Many are familiar with a uh, medical condition that causes confusion in uh, in our genetic, uh, not our genetic, but in our uh, perceived gender at birth, and that affects one out of 660 males. And I'm a math nerd. I did the percentage. It is point. It is one is uh, just over a tenth of one percent. So 99.9 percent of people who have ever been born throughout the history of humanity are either distinctly male or distinctly female. And that distinction is not of choice, but of divine design. Simply put, gender is not a choice. It is not chosen by you or for you except from God, either male or female. But gender doesn't just speak of distinction. It also speaks of our differences. And going back to uh, love and respect, and that's, you know, especially as you... It's funny, we've, Eric and I have gone through love and respect a number of times. I forget how many times we've gone through it, and we've seen the, how different people react with it. And so whenever a young married couple goes through it, they don't really get the, the humorous aspect of the differences between male and female because they haven't been together long enough. But if you've been married for any length of time, you know and can affirm that there are great differences between male and female. And this is what gender speaks to are the differences For indeed, these differences are numerous, and at times they are humorous. The differences we have are not wrong, but they are part of God's design. The culmination of what it means to be male and female helps us us to see a fuller image of the glory of God. Because both man and woman are image bearers of God. And so gender speaks to those differences. And sometimes we think those differences are wrong. They're not wrong. They're just part of God's design. And so we see that sexuality speaks to design and desires. And we see that gender speaks to uh, distinction and differences. And the reason that it is so important to understand these truths is that our culture is growing increasingly hostile against God's design for marriage, sexuality, and gender. 
more so than at least in my lifetime and probably more so in the in the history of humanity maybe only because it's on display uh, more so today than ever before thanks to technology more and more we are witnessing those around the world those around us who deny the divine decree and design of our creator there is a clear design and decree from god and there are more and more people who deny that and that is growing each and every day and unfortunately, this is not just on CNN. This is not just on college campuses, but even in our own community, in our classrooms, and sadly, even in some churches, we see this attack on God's design for marriage, sexuality, and gender. Just as there were those who are creeping into the church during Jude's time, as we'll continue to look at them in the coming weeks and months, There are those who are creeping into the church today all around us. We have unlimited doors and windows in which the enemy can creep into our church, into our homes, into our lives, into the lives of our kids. And it is an issue that especially our kids are facing at an alarming rate and at an alarming age. And so we gave the heads up uh, this morning that we'd be dealing with this difficult topic so the families can make their own decisions. And uh, I was a youth pastor for 13 years, and that was nine year, 10 years ago. And, uh, and things have gone even further now. But even then, I was asked, John, when, at what age should I be talking to my kids about uh, sexual issues and sexual immorality? I'm like, probably already. Can they talk? <laughs> Now's a good time. Because if you're not, someone else is. And so you want them to hear what God's Word says. You don't want them to hear just a do and don't, do and don't. You want to understand that it is an affront to the Gospel. Now, I know our kids at different ages and different stages and different families. I I fully get that. But we need to be prayerfully considering when to engage our children with these truths. And for some of us, we need to understand these truths first. So what do we do? Towards the end of the 3rd century, we've said this before, but at the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century, the church decided to retreat from culture, by and large, both from a sinful aspect and also even as the church regained power in the, um, in the community in which it was, thanks to Constantine, then all of a sudden there's corruption in the church. And between corruption in the church and sin in the culture and community, uh, much of the church retreated and what we call the monastic movement, and they became monks and nuns. Don't know about you, I don't desire to be a monk, and I don't desire to retreat, and that's not what God calls us to do. So, if that's not what we're called to do, what are we called to do? And I call it the gospel call. Christ has not commanded us to retreat, but He commands us to stand. We are to be salt and light in our world. We are to be salt and light in our community, in our family, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our classrooms, in the spheres of influence that God has given us. God has called us to be salt and light. You don't put a stand under something, but you put a lamp on a stand that all may see. So what is our response now? I'm just going to admit I'm going to be cheesy for a moment. It was not intentional. I don't often use acronyms. I love alliteration. I'll admit that. That's, it's just who I am, what I do. I'll be a preacher for 22 years, and you alliterate everything. 
I don't like acronyms, but this is an acronym that I submit to you if you want to uh, keep it, but it helps us. Our response is to show LGBT. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our response is to show love, grace, brokenness, and truth. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And oftentimes, church, we stop right there, right? We stop at that one verse. We said, see, God hates sinners. God hates the sexually immoral. God hates uh, homosexuals. God hates uh, thieves. And God hates the greedy. And God hates the drunkards. And we, 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 we create this, not create, we look to this list and we see that this animosity, that we begin to have this animosity towards these individuals who express these things. But then Paul often does, he goes right for the heart. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Ouch, right? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So how do we respond? What is the gospel call as we think about sexual moralities? We think about gender fluidities we think about the abuse of marriage what is our response to those in our life who are not leaning on the authority of god not submitting to the authority of god not living a life that is becoming of the lord what do we do even whenever and we don't know if those people are believers or not maybe they're professing believers but we see this sin in their life what do we do And so I submit to you that we love, we show them love, we show them grace, we show brokenness, and we show truth. Love every person that you meet. I know that's a big word, I know love means different things, and I I get that. But regardless of their sinfulness, regardless of their desire to force their opinions on you, which has become so rampant and triggers so many people, they are image bearers of God. First and foremost. So how can you love someone who's a sinner? How can you love someone who's sexually immoral or an idolater or an adulterer? How can you show love to a homosexual, a homosexual or a thief or someone who's greedy or a drunkard or a reviler or a swindler? How can you show love? You remember first that they are image bearers of God. And there, may, there have been many who have been freed from these sinful lifestyles and from this immersion into this sin, and they are followers of Jesus. Now, God has saved them, and they are His. And all the love that we see in Jude chapter 1, or in Jude verse 1, sorry, just like you chapter, right? Jude 1 is God demonstrates that love towards them as well. As they repent of their sins, they turn to Christ. And so we love every person as we strive to show them the love of God. And we love because what? Because we're good people. We love because we are good Southerners. We love because we want to be loved. No, we love because we have been loved. 
And when were we loved? While we were getting better. No, while we were sinners, in the midst of our sin, God loved us and loves us and continues to love us. So this is how we can show love to the sexually immoral, to the obstinate, to the difficult person, to the person who seems unlovable. But not only do we show love, we show grace. We show grace. Paul says it so well. As such were some of you. I am not authorized to change any word of God's word, but I would like to say as such were all of you, right? All of us, to some degree, fits all of this, one of these descriptions or all of these descriptions in some way or the other. He said, well, I've never committed adultery. But look what Jesus said. Have you ever thought of a woman lustfully? Have you ever thought of a man lustfully in your life? Have you ever wanted something from another person that your spouse is not giving you? Then you are an adulterer. So such are some or all of you. So we can show grace to those around us. We can show grace to the sexually immoral because we have been there. And by God's grace and mercy, we're still there. We still struggle. We still sin. But we often lack grace whenever we forget about our own sin. And just because your sin may be different, it doesn't make it any better. And the thing that over the years has helped me understand sin so well is to think about the, the weight of sin, the filthiness of sin, is not in as much in what it is, but who it's against. It's against a holy God. And that is why it is deplorable. That is why it is wretched. That is why we are condemned for those who are in their sin to eternal damnation. But we can show grace because we have been there. And we show grace because we've been given grace. So we show love. We show grace. We show brokenness. We show brokenness. Let us remember that the brokenness attached to the sins of sexuality and gender issues. There is brokenness in these individuals. There are brokenness of those who are enslaved to these sins, of those who are immersed in it, those who have been given over. It says in Romans that the penalty of their sins are in their own body. And God has given them those consequences for those who are just given over to sexual morality, to homosexuality, to, to, to struggling with these gender issues. To end these other sins, those who are given over to a reprobate mind. So we should be broken for these image bearers of God. That they are living a life of consequence and brokenness. Let us weep for those who are far from God and in bondage to sin. You're right. We should go to Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You cannot get any clearer, church. That yes, we should have grace and we should have brokenness. Grace because we've been there and brokenness because we know 
what sin brings. Sin brings death. Sin brings pain. It brings hurt. That there is nothing that sin offers that is good outside of the moment. So let us show brokenness. May we take no pleasure in the condemnation of another. But may we be broken over those who find themselves in bondage to sin. And finally, we show love, we show grace, we show brokenness. And finally, we show truth. We show truth. But it is with the backdrop of love, grace, and brokenness that we can then point others to the truth. We say, man, I'm, I'm glad I got some of these verses now. I can go to work tomorrow and this guy I've been talking to, I can finally show him the verses and show him that he's wrong and show him what the Bible says. Truth is not just objective facts. Truth is not winning an argument. Truth, as someone else said, is a person. Jesus brings healing from brokenness and life from death. And so truth is not merely a concept. Truth is a person. He is Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we point people to Jesus. And whenever we do so with the backdrop of love, grace, and brokenness, they will likely hear it if God, let me rephrase that, they will hear it if God is at work in them. And if God is not at work in them, there is nothing you can say or do to bring them to the Lord. It is not your task to drag someone kicking and screaming to God. It is our gospel call. It is our gospel command to be salt and light, to share the truth of Scripture, the truth of Christ. And for those that God is at work in, He awakens them and He brings them to Himself. And by God's grace, He uses us who are just recovering sinners. Man, God is good, isn't He? So how do we respond to those who are immersed in sexual morality, struggling with gender issues, and who have destroyed marriage? We do so by showing love, grace, brokenness, and truth. And we must know what God's Word says so that we may believe what it says. So that we may live according to what it says so that we can stand for what it says. And this is what we're going to see next week in verse 8 with this lack of authority that Jude finds in the church. Our authority is rooted in God's Word. So as we come to know God's Word and believe God's Word and live according to God's Word, then we can stand for God's Word. If the Holy Spirit dwells within us we will as believers reject the sexual ethic of the world and pursue the sexual ethic of the bible both in sexuality and in gender pursuing purity does not make us righteous but because we are made righteous in christ we will desire and pursue purity in all things let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that not only do you give us truth, Lord, that you've given us your Holy Spirit to live according to that truth. 
So this morning, I pray, Lord, if there is if there's someone here, someone listening who struggles in these areas and they've not given these to You, Lord, and they are embracing their sin, that they would repent of that sin and turn to You and trust You and ask for Your Spirit to fight that sin. They would be saved. They would be given a new heart. Or may we be those who are called by Your name who show love, grace, and brokenness and truth to those around us. And Lord, even in our sin as believers, may we look to You and trust You, Lord, not in our own strength, but in Yours. May You give us freedom from these sins. May You help us fight these sins for Your glory. As we sing, Lord, as we come to the communion table as we give, Lord. May we do all these things for your glory. We do all these things in response to all the good that you have done for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.